I love hearing from our students, and God is doing some amazing things among them. How are you doing today, community of faith? Doing good on this holiday weekend. That's great. You know, I don't know if I've been more excited about a new series that I've started in a long time. We're calling this Christianity 101. I think a lot of us are going to find out that Christianity isn't what we thought it was. We're looking at the Gospel of John, and we're going to be studying the Gospel of John through the end of the year. But it's so exciting to, to learn some of these deep things of God from such a simple book. You know, Scripture claims to be God-breathed, inspired by God. And I don't think we can see that in any place in the Bible more clearly than in this Gospel of John, this simple fisherman. John uses only 600 different words in his book, just 600. His whole vocabulary in the book of John is 600 words. Now, scientists tell us that a child can learn about 100 words a year in those early formative years. So the gospel of John can be understood by a seven-year-old but it's so profound and it's so deep that great minds, philosophers, have talked about the depths of this gospel for 2,000 years. I think we'll see a little bit of that today. I'm excited about what we're going to learn as we begin in that little prologue of the gospel of John. The background is John is almost 100 years old when he writes this gospel. He's the last of the last of the last of the disciples. Some five decades before, his brother James had been martyred by Herod the king. Peter was gone. He had been martyred. He was crucified upside down by the Romans. Even Paul, who came later, he had already gone on. He had been beheaded by Nero, the, the, the Roman emperor, and only John was left. And the Holy Spirit put in the heart of this almost 100-year-old man, there's one last thing I have for you to do. I want you to write this book. And the thing about the gospel of John is John, probably when he walked with Jesus, he had a lot of these things in his head. But as he got older as he aged and he began to practice them and live them. They came to be so rich in his heart. The gospel of John is the only gospel that tells us the why of Jesus, why he came, why he was here, the, the background of it. And John's super selective in the things that he writes. I mean, he spends the first 11 chapters of John writing about the first 33 and a half years of Jesus' life. And he, he skips a lot of things. He, he uses some really specific things, some of the miracles. He calls them the signs. And that's the thing about the miracles is they're, they're signs that John uses that point to why Jesus came. And we're going to find out next week exactly why he wrote it and what he was all about. But he spends those first 11 chapters on the 33 and a half years, and he spends the last 10 chapters on one week. 
the last week of Jesus' life. And there's a reason why. We're going to find out all about that. But he starts, I mean, this simple fisherman, 100 years old, using only 600 word, oh, 600 word vocabulary, he begins this gospel with something that's so deep and so profound that only the Holy Spirit could have breathed it into him. So let's look at this this morning and we need to get a little bit of the background to get that. Let me just start with verse one of chapter one. John says this, in the beginning was the word. Now, he's gonna go on to claim that Jesus is the word. But let me give you some background. The, the Greek word here is logos, logos. And it was a word that was known because for the last 500 years, the Greek philosophers had been talking about the logos. The Greek philosophers, who were the, the great thinkers of their day, they, they looked at the universe and saw balance, order, harmony. They believed that behind that balance, behind that order, there must be some kind of cosmic force, cosmic principle, a spiritual principle, and they called that principle logos. Now, it was an impersonal principle. It was, to them, an impersonal divine structure of the cosmos as a whole. So they asked themselves the question, where does this order come from? Where does this first principle come from? There has to be some absolute divine principle or truth to this order, this harmony. If you think about Star Wars and, and you think about, may the force be with you, it's kind of that feeling, okay? There's this force, there's this principle behind it all. Let me explain Logos a little bit more just by giving you kind of a silly illustration, but one Christmas when my kids were small, Santa brought them a little red wagon. Now, the only thing about this is that Santa did not put the wagon together. He just brought it in the package, okay? And um, so after our Christmas services at the little church where I pastored, I got home about 10 o'clock and I realized that Santa had come and had brought that wagon, but Santa had not put that wagon together. And that fell to me, okay? So it's late at night, I'm tired, and this wagon is in about 20 pieces. Um, and it came with a, a little piece of confusing paper. If you looked on the confusing piece of paper, you could say it was the logos of the wagon, okay? It was the divine order of how the wagon's put together. I don't know about the divine part, right? but it was how it was to be put together, the, the absolute laws of how the wagon was designed, what it was designed to look like, what it was designed to do, how it was designed to function. You see, logos means more than just word. It, it actually means the purpose, the reason, the, the, the principle behind all other principles, the purpose. Here is what the wagon was meant to look like, meant to do the purpose of that little red 
wagon. It's its reason for existing. And the, the directions are urging me to align the little wagon with the way it was designed, which I was still doing after midnight. Now, you need to know something about me. I was born with a mechanical bypass, I think, you know? So some of you are so amazing. Like you can just look at a lawnmower, you take it apart, put it back together. I can't even put together a little red wagon, okay? I'm looking at the instructions. I finally get the wagon finished and it just is a sad little wagon. doesn't look right. And later I realized I had put, you know, the handle on upside down and there had three parts left over that were obviously not needed, you know? And, uh, so Laura comes in about one o'clock and she looks at my little wagon and she says, you're going to have to start over because I had totally messed up the wagon. Okay. Now, Here's the thing. If you get the logos wrong, nothing works right. That's what the Greeks said. Nothing lines up. So what the Greeks were saying was, what if the universe has a logic, has a logos, a purpose, and we can align with that purpose? And if we align with that purpose, life will go the way it was meant to go. If we line up with the purpose of the universe, then we're gonna know how to live life the way it was meant to be lived. It's gonna bring fulfillment. There's an absolute truth behind the universe, the Greeks said, that we have to get ourselves aligned with. Now, there was a lot of discussion among them about exactly how to do that and a lot of different theories. The Stoics, for example, they thought how you aligned with the universe is you just have to grit your teeth and accept everything that happens to you as basically the will of the universe, and you just take it on the chin. And you've got to be tough to be a stoic. You've got to, you know, really be like just, you know, man up to be a stoic. It's, it's, it's difficult. You align yourself by summoning all your self-control and never letting anything get to you. Others said, well, that's too ambitious, you know. I mean, how many people can do that? Very few. The reason for life, we believe, is to make the earth a better place for the ones who come after us. It's a lot more simple than what the Stoics were trying to do. Just make the earth a better place for those that come after us. And still others said, no, no, the reason for life is to find what makes you happy. That was the Epicureans. That was their philosophy. Let's find the, the joy. Let's find what makes us happy. Let's find the pleasure of life. If we find what makes us happy, that's the ultimate logos. So all these different opinions on how to bring your life into line with the ultimate reality. And then comes the lightning bolt, the thunderclap. Nothing less than a, a huge earthquake. What is it? It's this little book, the Gospel of John. John under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says something about logos that's never been said before. So let me read you the first four verses. In the beginning was the logos, and the logos was with God, and the logos was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life and that life was the light of all mankind. Written 
by a simple fisherman in the vocabulary of a seven-year-old, John chapter 1. Up until this time, people believed the heart of the universe was an impersonal force. It was an absolute truth, but it was impersonal. They were principles. That is, be a moral person. Be a, a, a strong person. Be a brilliant person. Those were the things that, that they were trying to align themselves with. And then along comes John, and he says, yes, in the beginning, there was logos. And everything came from logos. It was the first of everything. And it was always there. But this logos, who designed everything, who spun the universe into existence, is not an impersonal force, an abstract set of principles. The Logos is a person who can be known, who can be loved, who can love back, but not something discovered through intense contemplation like a mystic would try to do, not some strength or self-control to be mustered up from within like the Stoics thought, but Logos is a divine person we are to know and we are to love and then we are connected to the heart of ultimate reality. This is revolutionary. It was never heard before. In the textbook called A Brief History of Thought, written by a French philosopher who is brilliant, and um, he's also an atheist, but he says this, up until this time, both Greek philosophy and Eastern religions believed that the heart of the universe, the logos, was basically impersonal, a cosmic force. But to the horror of the Greeks, the Christians maintained that the logos, in other words, the cosmic principle, was a single unique personality, one outstanding individual, namely Christ. So up until this point, everyone said the heart of ultimate reality is impersonal. Christianity says, no, the heart of the universe, the ultimate reality is personal, a person. Let me read on. In doing this, Christianity redefined the human person and offered the idea of a divine love that had an incalculable effect upon the history of ideas. To give one example, it is quite clear that without this Christian Reevaluation of the human person, the philosophy of human rights to which we subscribe today would never have established itself. The fact that we believe that every human has dignity, that every human is important, that came from Christianity based upon its reinterpretation of ultimate reality. And this is coming from a French philosopher who's an atheist. And all the great minds who have studied the, the history of ideas agree with this. But John goes on to say something more. He says, yes, there is a logos. But then he says, but this logos has been widely rejected. Let me just read you what he puts. He says in verse five, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. 
So there's a widespread rejection that Jesus is the logos, the ultimate reality of the universe. And to get aligned with life and to know the purpose of life is to know him as a person. Now, there are two ways that John says that Jesus was rejected. And we see it in verse five. He said, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, it's interesting that little word overcome. It's a Greek word that can mean overcome. Other versions say it, the the darkness did not comprehend it. The darkness did not understand it. So it's a little Greek word that means either overcome or understand. Well, which is it? Well, John on purpose here, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is being very ambiguous. Theologian D.A. Carson in his commentary on John says, this is a masterpiece of planned ambiguity. Maybe you're going, you know, I don't get it. I don't get it. I mean, understand, overcome, they're not even close, right? Well, there's a a, a semantic range in this word. There's a word in English that has kind of that same semantic range, and that is the word master, master. To master somebody, to beat someone in a game. Like you could say, yesterday I mastered him in golf. Now, it's not a typical way we would say it, but you get what it means. It's like, I, I, I overcame him. I beat him. I overcame him. But it can also mean I understood him. I've read all of his books, and I've mastered him. I get it. So to overcome or to understand, and that's the two ways to reject Christ, to be outwardly, outrightly hostile to him or to think that you're following him, but you missed it. See, those are the two ways that we reject Christ. How does this play out today? Well, there are many who just flat out reject, are overtly hostile to the idea that Jesus Christ is the logos, is the cosmic principle behind the universe. In fact, They reject the whole idea of logos, absolute truth. There is no absolute. There's the very idea of a moral absolute infuriates them. That we need a moral absolute we need to align our lives with. And they they are outrightly hostile. What they say is you have to decide your own truth. Every person comes up with their own logos. Sociologist Christian Smith, he studies the the moral and religious and spiritual views of younger adults in America. He's got a book on teenagers. He's got a book on the 20-somethings. And he studied their moral, spiritual, religious beliefs. Now, I'm not one of those old fogies that that looks at the young in America. If you're hearing, I don't know how you, aren't you young whippersnappers are believing, you know? I get it. I know why you believe what you believe. I, I see it, and I can see it when I look at Christian Smith's studies. In general, he says there are three characteristics of the spiritual beliefs of young America. Number one, they have strong moral feelings. Strong moral feelings. They're very upset if rights are violated. Strong feelings about justice. Strong feelings about the poor. Strong feelings about people groups being treated 
fairly. That's number one. Number two, they are moral relativists. Morality is person-specific and culturally relative. What do I mean by that? Person-specific means that everyone has the right to decide what is right or wrong for themselves, and no one has the right to tell you what is right or wrong for you. You need to decide that for yourselves. And you hear that in things like, well, what my truth is, and it's my own personal logos. That's, that's what it is. Also, it's culturally relative. Some cultures have their mores, have their customs, have their ethics, and you can't tell them that your cultural values are superior or better than theirs. So no one person should tell another person what is right or wrong for them. And our culture shouldn't tell another culture that our values are better or superior than your values. And then number three, they believe morally and morality. They believe morality is self-evident. If you ask a younger American, well, why do you think that is wrong? The answer will be, well, I just know that it is. I can feel that it is. In fact, everyone that I know knows that it is. It just is. So it's self-evident. Now, the researchers concluded two things from their research. Number one, this belief system is incoherent. First off, number three, that all morality is self-evident is incoherent on its face because people have argued about what is right and what is wrong forever since the beginning of mankind, right? And so many don't agree. You look at an America that is very divided between what is right and wrong right now. But the first two points also are incoherent if you hold them together. And where this would come out is when they would ask in their research, they would ask a young American, a teenager, for example, and say, okay, there's a country over here that doesn't allow women to drive because the husbands don't want their women to drive. They're afraid they will lose control of their women if they're able to move from place to place. And they want them at home, in the kitchen. They want them, you know, taking care of the family. And what do you think about that? Well, teenagers will go, well, that's just wrong. It's wrong. It's evident that it's wrong. And then they would say, so... You're saying that your cultural values are superior to theirs. Crickets. Because it was incoherent. And there's no logos. There's no moral or absolute truth. That actually gives us no right to say somebody else is wrong. In reality, if there are no absolutes, we can't tell anyone else they're wrong. There's no basis in fact, for any program of social justice. No, it's not wrong for you to lay those little female babies out to die because you want a male baby. Because in your culture, you just believe, well, in your religion, that they'll die and hopefully come back as a male in their next reincarnation. So, 
it didn't make sense completely. It was incoherent, but also it was inconsistent. Younger Americans are very concerned about the poor, but unbelievably materialistic in how they spend money on themselves. That's what this study brought out. Well, here's the thing. If you totally reject the idea of a logos, an absolute truth behind the universe, it leads to incoherence and inconsistency. So what's the solution? Aha, I know what it is. There is a logos. So now you just have to decide what it is for you. Is it the Ten Commandments or the Golden Rule? And then you live up to it like the Greeks of old. You align with it, and the world becomes a better place. The opposite of relativism is moralism, in which you decide there are moral absolutes, and I'm going to live in accordance with them, and then the world will be a better place. But what happens? Moralism is oppressive. It's oppressive in two ways. It oppresses the person who holds that view because you fail. You can't live up to your own moral standards. It's soul-crushing. It oppresses the person who holds it. But let's just say you are really strong and you have a strong will. You're like one of the Stoics of old. If you're strong enough to live up to your own moral standards, then it will turn you into an oppressor. You become self-righteous. You become a Pharisee. You seek to impose your moral absolutes on others. And it becomes oppressive. This is not the way to embrace Christ. Jesus came to his own, and they couldn't understand him. They couldn't comprehend him. They couldn't figure him out. Why? Because he hung out with sinners. He hung out with prostitutes. He hung out with tax collectors who were working for the Roman oppressors and also were cheating their own people so for their own financial gain. And they even heard him say to the Pharisees that the prostitutes will get into heaven before you. Well, we don't understand, Jesus. Are you saying we don't have to be a good person? They didn't understand him. And that's the other way to reject him. The relativist overtly hostile to the idea of Christianity and moral absolutes. The moralist, by being a good person, you think you're following Jesus, but you're not. You don't understand him, and you're still rejecting him. So as a society, we're stuck. We're stuck between these two. And, you know, as a society, we've pretty much adopted the no absolutes. But let me just give you an example for how we're stuck in between even the generations. When my generation was growing up, Who were the people that were trying to blow us up? Who were the bad people? The communists, right? Those ungodly atheists, right? Who denied that there even was a God. So the people who believed in God were the good people, right? The people who didn't believe in God, the atheists and the God deniers, they're the bad people. But if you're 30 or under, 
in your lifetime, who are the people who've been trying to blow us up? Uh, the people who are moralists, the people who think they know better than everybody else, and they have a moral code. In fact, the United States is the great Satan. That's a very spiritual term, isn't it? We know better. You are contaminating the earth, and we will destroy you. Religious fanatics, moralists are the bad people. People who think they have the absolute truth. So younger Americans have been raised when the moralists were the bad people. And we've rejected the idea of absolute truth, rejecting moralism. But unfortunately, that just leaves us incoherent and inconsistent. So what do we do? What's the solution? Not relativism or moralism. Is there any hope? Is there any way through? Yes. It's called the gospel. That's why the word gospel literally means the good news. For 2,000 years, this little book of John has been saying, but I have good news. This is my gospel. And look, look at how he puts it in verse 12. They had rejected him. They didn't receive him. Verse 12, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word, the logos, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. So what John is saying is, we could never be moral enough. We could never be contemplative enough. We could never understand enough to find the absolutes behind the universe. It, it, it's not possible from us and our finite brains and the position that we're in as a prodigal planet far from what God wanted. We can't earn it. We can't become a proud oppressor. Jesus is the logos. Jesus is the word. He's the last word on everything. And what is that word? Well, let me just close with this illustration. Mary Ann Bird was born in a time where we didn't have all the great surgeries that we do now, and she was born with a cleft lip. Now they can do surgery in the womb to repair a cleft lip before the baby's even born. But she was born with a cleft lip, and she was convinced as she grew up with this deformity that no one could ever love her. As a child, she was made fun of by the other kids. I mean, they would look at her and they, they would see this, this classmate who, who, who had a misshapen lip, who had a crooked nose, who had lopsided teeth, who had garbled speech. She said when the schoolmates would ask her, what happened to your face? She would say she tripped and fell on glass because she thought that was better than trying to tell them I was born this way. There was a second grade teacher that was 
greatly loved by all of the kids. Her name was Mrs. Leonard. Mrs. Leonard was, was just one of those vivacious teachers that all the kids were, you know, pulled toward, and everyone wanted to be her favorite. Marianne Bird said they had a, a time when they would do a hearing test every year. And back in this day, the way they did it, it was pretty old-fashioned. I mean, they would just have the student go and stand by the door of the classroom. The teacher would still be sitting at her desk, and you would cover one ear, and she would whisper something, and you would see if you could hear it. Then you would cover the other ear, and she would whisper something. And she said, you know, she heard her with each of the students. Like, she would say, like, your shoes are brown. The sky is blue. They would repeat it back. She said, finally, it was her turn, and she was so embarrassed to get up in front of people. She didn't like to have anyone looking at her, but she got up, and she went to the door, and she covered one ear, and then she said she heard the seven words that changed her life forever. As she was there with one ear covered, Mrs. Leonard whispered, I wish you were my little girl. She said it changed her in a moment. She felt loved. She felt pulled toward this, this sweet woman that cared about her, that loved her, that wanted her, that saw in her something precious. This is Jesus. He's the last word. And what is he saying in his last word? He's saying, I wish you were my little girl. I wish you were my little boy. In fact, I will sacrifice everything. The great eternal one, the cosmic principle of absolute everything from which everything sprung, even life itself. And I will humble myself and I will come down and I will sacrifice myself so that you and I can have relationship. The mercy of God is the logos. That's the logos. Can't get all proud and think, wow, aren't I really something? Aren't I superior to everyone else? It's just a free gift. It's the gift of the love of God. I want you just to close your eyes with me. I hope that you could feel the power of the Holy Spirit behind these words. There's so much power in what this old fisherman writing like a seven-year-old put down. It changed history, and it will change you. If you've never stepped into this, to as many as received him, Jesus you are the logos. You are the final word. You are everything. You are life. I step into you. I receive you. I want you to be the boss of my life. I want to walk in this. I want to journey with you. He gives the right to become children of God. I want you to be my little. I want you to be my little boy. Do you hear his whisper? 
this eternal one. He's right here, right now. Father, don't let us miss this. Jesus, let us hear your whisper spirit. Speak through these God-breathed words into our hearts. I pray that no one will leave here today without stepping into you, receiving you, becoming a child of God. Thank you that you are the Logos, the eternal one, the divine principle that holds the world together. And as we align with you, our world begins to hold together. Come kingdom of God upon us. Be done will of God over us. Let nothing stop what you want to do in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. For some people that'll be here at the front, to pray with you. They're just like you. But if you want to know more about this or you want to pray and say, how do I do this? You can do that or you can do it right in your seat where you were. You can leave today and think about it. Read the first chapter of John and ask God to speak it to you. If you're a believer already, spend some of this holiday just thanking God for what he did for you. I'm so excited. Next week, we'll delve even deeper into this. There's some really cool stuff God wants us to see. Can't wait to see you then. I love you, community of faith.